Isaiah chapter 7, verse number 14, the Bible says, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. Heavenly Father, please be with us this evening, I ask in Your holy and powerful name. Amen. How many of you have ever missed a very important sign? I can think of a few times in my life where I've missed an important sign. One time when I was in high school, I was probably a senior in high school at this point. It was over the summer break. Uh, Me and Cody Sears had decided we were going to go to Granberry Country Club and play some golf together. And so uh, Cody got a little earlier start than me, and so he beat me to the course. I called him, and he said, yeah, we're just about to start nine. Uh, And so it's only a nine-hole course, so you really only play nine holes at a time. And, And I thought to myself, well, it takes about two hours to play nine holes, Um, and it's only about a 30-minute drive to Granbury for me, so I really appreciate you having the patience to wait on me, Cody, because now I'm going to have to wait an hour and a half on you. And so I was really appreciative of that. I thought that was a real friend thing to do, go ahead and tee off and then just worry about me when you come back around. So that was good. And uh, so I really was not in any type of hurry at all as I left my house. And I'm telling you, back then, me and Cody played a lot of golf at Granbury Country Club, so... Um, I, I traveled the roads all, all the time, and I was very familiar with the, the route that, that I would be driving. And I think I had been on vacation or something, though, and it had been about two weeks since I had traveled the route to Granbury. And uh, I remember turning there on 171 and traveling just at a normal rate of speed, just just. Uh, listening to my music and just driving, thinking about how Cody had stabbed me in the back and I was going to have to wait forever for him to uh, come back around. And then a police officer uh, decided to color the rearview mirror of my vehicle with his beautiful Christmas lights that he carries around with him everywhere. And I pulled over and I, I, frankly I had no idea what I had done wrong and uh, this man pulled me over he said, do you have any idea why I pulled you over? I said, no, sir, I have no idea. And uh, he said, well, the speed limit is uh, 55 miles an hour. And I said, uh, <laughs> sir, I'm not trying to tell you how to do your job, but I've lived here a long time, and I know what the speed limit is. And he goes, yeah, it changed two weeks ago. <laughs> I said, really? And I look in my rearview mirror, and I can see in my rearview mirror a sign that would be for the uh, other way of traffic. I'm not exactly sure, but the, the, the traffic heading towards Cleburne on 171 there. And the sign says 65 miles an hour, and it's behind me. And I said, sir, I'm literally sitting in a 65 mile an hour zone. He said, yes, but when I clocked you, you were in a 55 mile an hour zone, and you were doing 63. I said... Mister, I'm not, officer, I'm not in a great big hurry. Literally, my friend is a terrible friend, and 
I'm just going to have to sit at that clubhouse and drink a soda and eat a tuna sandwich while I wait on him to play an hour and a half of golf. I'm not in any hurry. There was no traffic to judge my speed by. I just was driving, and, and frankly, I did not see the sign. And he said, well, that's no excuse. And he decided to give me a ticket. And I understand. I mean, I was, I was speeding according to the law, so I missed a very important sign. Another time in my life, I had taken my sister, I believe her then at the time boyfriend, to a Dallas Mavericks game. And uh, we had a good time. Uh, that was back when the Mavericks actually were competitive at the level of basketball that they played. And uh, we had a good time, and, and we were doing good, but I don't know if, if, if you feel this way as well, but I hate big town traffic. Man, keep me south of South Freeway. I don't want to go any further than, than Academy. That's my cutoff point. And I'm telling you, man, you get up there in that big city, it's a different world the way them folks drive. Uh, there is no courtesy. They, there is no type of friendly waves. They would do a lot of waving, but I've noticed it's with far fewer fingers than what we are accustomed to. And, and man, I, we got in this, this place where um, I was trying to merge onto a major interstate off of a, a fairly large thoroughfare, and there was so much traffic, and I did not understand at the time the reason for the traffic. But my, my parents taught me as they were teaching me to drive, don't trust your mirrors. And so I, I'm looking at the mirror, but I also understand that you have blind spots that the mirror doesn't catch. And in this particular situation, I was looking back a lot, trying to find a gap in the uh, uh, traffic to get in. And these people were moving. I mean, the traffic was going about 50 miles an hour. There was just no spot for me to get in. And so going from a standstill to 50 miles an hour in this type of a, 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 a traffic situation just was out of the question. So I'm inching forward and inching forward trying to find my way and I'm looking back trying to find an opening in this congestion of traffic and there, there was never an opening. And then I look up and I find myself parked in a construction area that just so happened to have a very angry police officer at it. And the police officer came to my window. Uh, at first, well, it was very strange because he was in front of me. I believe he was there to protect the construction workers, and I understand that. He, uh, he, he had to back up around me, so he had to go uh, around into all of this traffic to get behind me. It was a very strange situation. He was very upset with me. And he came to my window and he goes, do you understand that we have to go home at night too? And sir, I said, getting home is my main and only objective, sir. And uh, some other things were said, not by me, I will say, but uh, uh, maybe you've heard this story, but it ends with me getting a ticket um, and some advice on never to travel with the people that I was with again. Um... But apparently there were all sorts of construction ahead, uh, uh, watch your speed, construction zone signs everywhere. And I missed every single one of them because I was looking back. Have you ever missed a very important sign? Tonight in the Bible we read of, without a doubt, the most important sign that's ever been given to mankind. 
And the tragedy is, so many people missed it or completely misunderstood it. So tonight I want to study this sign given by God so that we can understand what it means to us. Uh, Number one, I want to first of all take a look at the meaning of the sign. Verse number 14 says, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Now this is a very unique time in the Old Testament. Uh, The prophet Isaiah is certainly a unique prophet. And I want to first of all kind of fill you into the peril of the times that is going on. You see, King Ahaz is at this time the king of Judah. King Ahaz is not like King David or King Solomon. We're a long way removed from the glory days. If you'll remember, one of the main reasons that God did not want Israel to have a king is He was afraid that they would turn into every other nation and start relying on political power instead of power from on high. You see, the time when Israel was doing so well was when they simply trusted God. And even King David, the success to his throne was not that he was a wise man or that he was a a man of war. The success to his throne was established because he was a man who believed in the power of God. But we're a long way from that. You see, King King Ahaz probably is a, 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 a person who remembers the stories of the power of God, but he is not a man himself who necessarily trusts in it. You see, uh, the Assyrian Empire at this point in time is growing to be the power of the day. All, All other nations are threatened by them. Syria and Ephraim, Ephraim being the northern kingdom of Israel, they have bargained and reasoned together to work together to fight against Assyria. But they understand they're very outmatched. So what Ephraim and Syria do is they go against Judah, whose king is Ahaz. They camp against them, they fight against them, and the entire reason is to convince Judah to join league with them against Assyria. Now I understand when we start talking about Old Testament places and times and countries and kings, it gets a little bogged down. But what you need to know is, Assyria is the power of the day, Ephraim and Syria are in league with one another, and they're trying to convince Judah or the remnant of Israel which God has established His covenant with and His throne through, uh, uh, they're trying to convince uh, Judah to join them. Here's the problem. King Ahaz has already made a deal with Assyria. And the real problem is, he took gold and silver from the house of the Lord to pay... Assyria for their assistance. And what you have now is a nation who at one time, they've always been the smallest nation, but what was so great about them is numbers didn't matter when they had God on their side. And, and when, when they trusted in God, they were always the, the victor. They were always the underdog that miraculously won in great victory. That is who they were. But they're a long way from those days. 
And now King Ahaz trusts in underhanded politics more than he does in the almighty arm of God. The peril of the times. You see, Israel at this time needed a sign more than ever. They were far removed from the glory days of who they were. The peril of the times. Secondly, notice with me if you will, the promise of the sign. This prophecy is made by Isaiah in what many believe about 734 B.C. That's about 730 years before our Lord came to this earth as a child. So the prophecy is made over 730 years that Jesus, the sign from God, would come to this earth. 700 years. For 400 years, between the conclusion of the Old Testament, when Malachi ceases his writings, to the appearance of John the Baptist on the scene, it's about 400 years of complete silence from God. No prophecy. No revelation. No miracles from God. Complete silence from heaven. And yet we have this promise that God would send a sign. I'm sure King Ahaz looked forward to the day when he was able to see the sign. We're even told of a man by the name of Simeon who was promised before he would see death that he would see the consolation of Israel. You see, in 700 years, there had been a sign promised and there were still people looking for the sign to come. I find it amazing how nowadays we Christians are labeled as loonies if we believe or we call for our Lord's return. We're viewed as the maniac on the corner with a cardboard around our neck shouting that the world will soon come to an end all because we believe Jesus will keep His promise of returning and redeeming His children. We are the ones who are out of our minds. And I just wonder if anybody ever told Simeon to, ah, Simeon, you just take that sign stuff. Simeon, you just take all your hopes and all the promises of the Word. It's all storybook. It's all fable. Simeon, why don't you just pipe down with that stuff? Viewed as a lunatic. 700 years he kept the faith. Certainly he wasn't alive for those years, but somebody had taught him to look for the sign 700 years. Friend, it's been now 2,000 years since my Lord ascended to heaven and He promised that when He left, He would return. And I have never in my life, as I've studied this book, found one time when God promises something that He has not followed through with it. When the Bible says something, it usually concludes the matter with something like this. And it came to pass. And you understand, when Jesus made the promise that He would return for me, it wasn't hyperbole, it wasn't hypothetical, it was Jesus Christ claiming to literally one day step out on the ledge of nothing and call me to glory, and I'll be redeemed from this old wicked world. And just like the promise that God would one day send a sign, one day He's going to send my Redeemer, and He's going to send my Deliverer, and I won't have to live in this old wicked world anymore. But when God promises something, He always follows through. Boy, we need a sign. And that's the meaning of the sign, is that when God promises, it always comes to pass. The meaning of the sign, secondly, 
as we study this verse, not only is there the meaning of the sign, but there's the miracle of His birth. See, the Bible says, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Well, how are we going to know it's from the Lord? You see, when the Lord does something, it's usually pretty awesome. That's the way He works. He's a miracle-working God who walks on the water and, and, and calls for mustard seed kind of faith to move mountains. That's my God. So if He's going to give me a sign, it's got to be something pretty spectacular. What's this sign going to come like? Well, verse 14. Behold, something's going to happen that ain't never happened heretofore. A virgin shall conceive. And bear a son. That's good news when you find out you're bearing a son. I hope to one day experience that joy and and thrill. I'll let you know if it ever happens. The Bible says a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You see, not only is there a meaning of the sign, but there is a miracle in His very birth. And since Scripture was first established, one of the primary things that has been under attack is the very virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It's the one that people struggle with the most. And I'll tell you right now, if you Google, can you uh, Christians believe uh, 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 that Jesus is not virgin born, you'll get all sorts of heretics and lunatics on there claiming that they're a Christian that doesn't believe in the virgin birth. I'm here to tell you, you don't believe in the virgin birth. You don't believe in Christ. There's a miracle in His birth. The world attacks the virgin birth of Jesus Christ like it could never happen. You see, a New York Times writer wrote recently, the faith in the virgin birth reflects the way American Christianity is becoming less intellectual and more mystical over time. It's not mystical when you think that God, who is all-powerful, can do something that is unexplainable. There's no mysticism. There's no fairy dust or pixie dust. All it is is my God is powerful, and with Him all things are possible, the Bible says. The world's attacking Him. Not only is the world attacking Him, here's what's more frustrating. There's false teachers amongst us teaching that, that it was not literal, it was figurative teaching. A retired Episcopal bishop by the name of John Shelby Spong, sounds like an intelligent fella, he argues that the doctrine of the virgin birth was just evidence of the early church's overclaiming of Christ's deity. It is, as Spong tells us, the entrance myth to go with the resurrection, the exit myth. What type of bishop, pastor, elder, crazy man could ever read the book that is in front of me? And and frankly, any perversion of this book and somehow get out of it that the virgin birth is not real, nor is His resurrection real. I would like to ask Mr. Spong, what do you believe in? What, what, what are you in church for? 
What does church have to offer you if the Savior claimed lies and He wasn't able to overcome the grave? He's dead today. What are you there for? But Christian, if it's true, if it's true, does it not give us meaning? Does it not give us a way to look at who we are and what we ought to be in a whole new light? If when Matthew claims that it would be a virgin who would conceive, if Luke says the power of the Almighty will overshadow you and the one whom you will conceive is of the Holy Ghost, over and over the Bible defends the fact that Mary did not know Joseph and that Mary would never know Joseph until after Christ came and was born. She wasn't just a maiden. She wasn't just a young girl. She was a moral girl who was pure and chaste. And she was a virgin who had never known a man. The world can attack it. Uh, False teachers can attack it. But if if Matthew's going to tell me she was a virgin, and Dr. Luke is going to tell me she's a virgin, and other scriptures all throughout the Old Testament are going to tell me that it would be the seed of the woman that would bruise the serpent's head, and it would be a virgin who would conceive, and His name would be Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If I'm to read those scriptures, the only conclusion I have is, He was virgin born! And if I believe that, friend, it ought to change everything about me. If truly Jesus is virgin born, the rest of His ministry is icing on the cake. His miracles, you don't need those to prove His deity. His words, you don't need those to prove His deity. You don't need Him and John to claim that I am. You don't need any of that. You frankly don't even need the the proof of His resurrection because by His immaculate conception and His virgin birth, He is God and God stamps His approval on every word that He would ever say the day He was born in that manger in Bethlehem. There's a miracle in His birth and it's under attack. Christian, we of all people ought to understand the doctrine of the virgin birth. Not only is there meaning in the sign and the miracle of His birth, Finally, I want you to see this, and this is so good. There's a message in His name. Verse number 14 not only tells us that God, the Lord Himself, would give us a sign, and a virgin would conceive and bear a son, but there's very specific instructions given, and shall call His name Emmanuel. Preacher touched on it this morning. Matthew tells us the interpretation of this word. Emmanuel literally means God with us. As I look through the Old Testament, I study it and I see the way that God interacted with men before Christ came. God doesn't change. He's always the same. He's consistent. But I, I look at just the nation of Israel and the way that God interacted with them. You see, God chose His man, and that was Moses. God chose His people, and that was Israel. But it was almost as if Moses had, and I don't want this to come across the wrong way, somewhat of a monopoly on God's presence on his life. You say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? You see, Moses is unique, because even though there were people there to help him, servants, in fact, 
later on in the ministry of Moses, Joshua becomes his right-hand man. And yet when he is to ascend to the mount of God to receive the tablets of the law of God, he is the only one there. There's a group of men, leaders, that are uh, at the base of the mountain. Joshua is somewhere between the base of the mountain and him, but Moses is the only one there receiving the law of God. He returns to the people in his face, obviously is glowing with the glory of God, as if his body had absorbed some of God's wonderful glory there. Everybody else, uh, certainly they're, they're not what we would term Christian, but they believe in the God of Israel. They are like we are. They know the God that we know. And, and there they stand almost intimidated by Moses because of the glory that is on his face. Another time they've set a tent of meeting outside the camp. Moses goes to the tent of meeting. Everybody else uh, exits their tent and stands at the threshold of their tent just to watch Moses walk by. Moses goes to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle outside the camp afar off, and the glory of God descends when he's there. He meets with God. He leaves the, 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 the tent of meeting. The glory of God leaves. Now, I find this unique. The Bible says Joshua still stayed there. You see, Joshua wanted what Moses had. And I think that's an admirable thing. But it was when Moses was there, the, the glory of God would clearly fall upon that tent. And people would not go to the tent to worship. They would stay where they were to worship the God that Moses was meeting with. And there was this almost living off of Moses' faith. And I find it unique that once Moses passes off the scene in Joshua chapter 1, it was not until Moses was gone that God says to Joshua, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. But it was not until Moses was gone. And Joshua is now the man that God would work through. As I was with Moses all his days, I will be with you. God clearly chose His nation. God clearly chose His man. But something happens when Jesus somehow, and I, out of all the doctrines in the Bible, the one I do not understand the most is how God can somehow be placed into the womb of a woman. When my child that we're currently having, if you didn't know we're having a child, pray for a man-child, please, I pray. <laughs> my wife gets updates on her cell phone with the stages that we're at, and I think my child right now is about the size of a peanut. Explain to me how God, God who the heavens cannot contain, the earth and all that there is, is His footstool. Somehow got placed into the womb of a woman. And that sign that was there in that manger changed the way that God would deal with people. Before it was God's man and God's nation. Now, 
please don't mistake, everyone that's ever been saved has been saved the same way. That's not what I'm saying. But when Christ came to this earth, He did not choose a man. The Bible tells us He ate with publicans and sinners. He went out of His way to reach the filthiest and the lowest. One of the most wonderful statements in the Bible is this. We must needs go through Samaria. Why is it so important? Because He's going to go witness to who in the Jewish mindset would have been the most vile human being in the world. A half-breed, wicked woman. Sinful beyond all belief. And He says... God of the universe, who at one time dealt with His man and His nation, now Christ, the sign given from God, says, we must needs go through Samaria. His disciples say, Lord, that's not such a good idea. I don't think we should do that. And He said, boys, I've got an appointment to keep. One day the Pharisees were criticizing our Lord and they came to His disciples. And he was eating with a group of people who they did not feel worthy to eat with. The the people that the Lord was eating with were not worthy to eat with the Pharisees, is what I'm trying to say. The Bible says they come to the Lord's disciples and they say, Why does your master eat with publicans and sinners? I don't know if Jesus overheard them and I don't know if Jesus knew their thoughts, but he says, Fellas, They that be whole need not a physician. I did not come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. Emmanuel. It changes everything. Emmanuel, God walked among us. God came to be one of us so that we could be with Him one day. Don't read Emmanuel like this empty thing that has never meant anything to anyone. It means everything to me that God came to this world and walked among sinners and publicans just so one day that I could bow a knee at an altar and say, Lord, I'm not worthy to enter into the least of your pleasures, but God, for some reason, you sent your son, Emmanuel, to be with us, to die for us, to make me one of your own. Oh, God, thank you for that. Emmanuel, God with us. It means a great deal to me. You ever missed a sign that was important? Burleson, in the years that we've been here, has boomed. I remember when Burleson and Joshua were nothing. You say, how old are you? Old enough to remember, so stop asking. I remember when our Walmart was where Hobby Lobby currently is. I remember that there were no groceries at all in our Walmart. We just went there really to buy a hunting and fishing license because even their outdoor section was a pathetic joke. If we really wanted to go somewhere nice to eat, we had to drive to Hewlett. I remember thinking Red Lobster was like the greatest place our family could ever go to eat and we had to drive to Hewlett to get there. That was before the toll road. I mean, it was a commitment to go, man. And, and I remember those days. And now, man, Merlison has just exploded. We've got everything. I find it comical when we sit around us think, 
Where do you want to go to lunch today? And these words are ever uttered. Man, there just isn't that much. How did we survive when all we had was Captain D's and Jose's? We had a lot of buffet and a lot of crab cakes, man. Man, Burleson's just exploded. But out of all the wonderful things that these additions have come to offer us, I'll tell you what my favorite is. We've got an academy. You don't understand. I used to have to wait on the mail for three days to get stuff that I can drive ten minutes to get now. Man, I, I, go, to an, I go into academy just to cheer up. I find out that one of my teenagers said, I can't preach worth a lick. All right, academy trip. I love academy, man. I go in there. I find myself just going like to, to sections I have no business going. I just go look at the Crocs. Have you all seen the Crocs section at academy? My gracious, there are thousands of Crocs on the wall. And I'm thinking this ought to be in my closet. You say you wear Crocs every day. Man, I, I, I love that place. I'll never forget when I first learned that we were getting one. It changed my life. <laughs> I was thinking, I'll never have to drive to Hewlin again. I can just drive to Burleson, which most of the time I'm already at. And I can buy a baseball bat. I can buy arrows. I can buy a duck call. I, I mean, I could go, there's a list, a really long list that I could buy, but anything in Academy I could buy. I can go up there and buy random wood chips for a grill that I don't even have because Academy rocks, man. When I first found out that we were getting one, it was exciting, but really, until it's open, it's useless. It's no more effective or meaningful to you until the store is open. So every time I drove by Academy, you know what I was looking for? This huge sign that said, now open. Because the day that sign was posted, it would change it. I never have to drive again. I never have to wait for the mail again. I could spend countless hours and way too much money in there. But the sign had to say, now open. When Jesus came to this world, what should have been posted on that crib or on that little rustic barn, if you will, ought to have been a sign that said, now open heaven. It changed everything when He came. I'm not even preaching a message to you tonight about the meaning of Christmas. I'm preaching a message to you tonight about the meaning of Christ. Amen. If we get our definitions and our terms right on the meaning of Emmanuel coming to this earth and abiding with us and walking with us and dying for us so that we could walk with God, if we'll understand that, Christmas will radically change for us. Because heaven is now open for business.